Well, beloved, this morning our continuing study of the Gospel of Luke brings us to chapter 18. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. But before we read it together, let's ask God to bless what we're about to do. Father, as we are together in proximity, I pray we would now come together spiritually to Your Word. You tell us in Hebrews 4.12, Your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of bone and marrow, soul and spirit. What that means, Father, is that You did not give us Your Word to make us feel good all the time. You did not... Give us your word so that we could be self-affirmed, but you gave us your word to reveal yourself and to sanctify your people. So let us remember this morning, Father, I pray you will let us remember that this morning we are going to be accountable for all we hear. As Hebrews 4.12 tells us about the nature of your word, the next verse reminds us that none of us is hidden from your sight, but we all... Are and everything we do and think and say is laid bare before Him with whom we have to do. So, Father, I pray You might bless the preaching, the hearing, and the living out of Your Word, and that it would be pleasing in Your sight until the coming of Your Son, in whose name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Luke 18, 9 through 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast Twice a week I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Throughout our time in Luke, beloved, one thing has been made abundantly clear. And it is that to be a Christian at all, and to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, these two things are synonymous. That is to say, the biblical authors and Jesus Himself made no distinction between these two things. If you are a Christian, then you are a disciple. If you are not a disciple, you are not really a Christian. And if that's the case, we are not saved by our obedience, but we are saved because we trust in Jesus and that compels us to obey. If you are a Christian, you heed His command. If you are a disciple, you do what the teacher tells you to do. You follow Him. You follow Jesus at the expense of your own opinion because He is Lord. Your will is subjugated to His. You follow Jesus no matter what. You follow Jesus 
Not at the expense of your earthly family, but when Jesus and family even are at odds with one another, you follow Jesus because it's those who hear the Word of God and observe it who are His true family. In other words, even when it's those closest to you, even when it's those who you share life with, pushing you to think something or say something or do something, but you know it's not pleasing in the sight of Jesus Christ, and you know what it takes to truly honor Jesus Christ, you follow Him instead. What have we seen in Luke, beloved? We've seen that being a Christian is the free gift of God. It is by His grace. It is His gift of faith to all who are His. We've seen that this gift of salvation, being a disciple of Jesus, in His words, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up his own possessions. That becomes even clearer a little bit later on in Luke 18. Being Jesus' disciple means that you abdicate all personal claims of ownership in this world. Rather, that means your family, your job, your car, whatever you might think is yours. It belongs to Him. This world belongs to Him. Your family belongs to Him. Your job belongs to Him. Your friends, how you deal with them belongs to Him. Your church belongs to Him. Everything you are, everything you have, everything you ever will be belongs to Jesus if you're His disciple. Because when all is said and done, beloved, when all the comparisons of what people believe in the world have been made, there will have been two and only two religions which ever existed. One is the religion of divine accomplishment. The religion of divine accomplishment. The only religion by which men are saved. It is the religion of God's grace, of faith, of the sincere heart. It is the religion of the inner man. And the other is the religion of human achievement. Which gives often a wink and a nod to God but is in reality based upon men's works, upon self-righteousness, upon what the flesh desires, upon hypocrisy. It is the religion of the outer man, what people see. And nowhere in Scripture do I believe the distinction between the two religions is any clearer than in the six verses we've just read. Last week in Luke 18, 1-8, Jesus told us how to pray for the coming of His kingdom. And in verses 9-14, through He has once again shown us how we can enter it. How a sinner like you and how a sinner like me can be with Him forever. And this morning, He shows us what each of us needs to do. And as we think through these verses, we need to ask ourselves, what religion am I really practicing? Which God do I really worship? To which kingdom do I really belong? Because the standard for the kingdom of God is absolute perfection. It is perfect obedience to every single one of God's commands every minute of every day. All of the time, without exception. The command to be holy, for He is holy, applies. Jesus does not make that easier for us 
in the New Testament. He does not lessen God's standard. He actually says you are to be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5.48 So in what we do, in what we say, in what we think, in all of our motives, we have to always be holy. We have to always be obedient. We have to always be in keeping with the character of Jesus Himself. One blip and that's it. Because James 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on one point has become guilty of all. And so, the obvious problem is we're hopeless because no one meets that standard. If absolute perfection is demanded in the kingdom of God, I'm not making it. And guess what? You're not making it either because there is none who is inherently righteous. There is none who in and of himself seeks for God. There is none who understands. There is none who does good. And we can't do anything in and of ourselves to change that. The change does not come from within us any more than as Jeremiah 13.23 says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The answer, of course, is no. And why? Because Jeremiah 17.9, a few verses later, says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And what's always struck me as incredibly sad about that verse is the word deceitful. Because it tells us our hearts lie to us about how good we are. Our hearts lie to us about how righteous we are. And perhaps, whether or not, we are really in the kingdom of God. And it's because of that deceitfulness of heart that Jesus spoke this parable. In verse 9, he told his audience, well, we, we, we see his audience, and he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Jesus addressed this parable literally to whoever the ones are who trust that their own righteousness is really what's gaining them favor with God, what's granting them entrance into His kingdom. And again, deceit. They don't think they are trusting in, his own, in their own righteousness. They don't think they're trusting in their own goodness. They are winking and nodding at God, but not really trusting in Him. Not really entrusting themselves to Him. And the way that is shown is that true faith obeys. The immediate audience here in Luke 18, of course, they were Pharisees because they were the dominant force behind the Judaism of the masses in Jesus' day. It's their theology that dominated the synagogues and it was a man-centered theology. It was a mixture of God's promises with what man does to be righteous. They paid lip service to the Lord. They paid lip service to the Word of God. In fact, they wanted to make sure everyone followed the law so much that they added on traditions, so much so that in Mark chapter 7, Jesus tells them point blank, you are nullifying the Word of God for the sake of your traditions. In other words, the Bible wasn't what mattered to them. Keeping things the way they wanted them is what mattered to them. 
Keeping things the way they wanted them. They lived, they taught the people not to measure themselves against God's standards, but to measure people against the standards they set. And Paul was one of them. Do you realize that? In Philippians 3 we read that he was a Pharisee, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. In other words, Paul looked the part. He looked the part. If you were to look at everything about him on the outside, you would have said, this is the most holy man I could ever imagine. But everything about Paul was fake. He was called Saul back then. But until Jesus shone him the light, literally, on the Damascus road, everything about him was him deceiving himself because the heart is desperately wicked, desperately sick. But what happened when he was saved? Philippians 3, 7, and 8. But as whatever things were to gain to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish. Why? So that I may gain Christ. The world looked at Paul as, as, as the prototypical righteous Jew. But when God gave Paul eyes to see and ears to hear, he saw himself in the light of the righteousness of God, and he knew he couldn't compare. He was rubbish. He was trash. He was of no worth next to Christ. And I thank God that a self-righteous man like Paul was saved because it gives hope to me. Thank God Paul was used of God to communicate the Word of God even to us here today. But the tragic thing is there are many more like the old Paul than the new Paul whose heart to this very minute deceives them, who trust, Jesus says, in themselves that they are righteous and view others with contempt. That word contempt in the Greek means to despise, to hold of no account, to consider worthless or of no value. Jesus, the Holy One of God, throughout His ministry was surrounded by Pharisees, religious people who were like that. They trusted in themselves, treating others as of no account. Two men go into the temple to pray. That would have been a familiar scene. It could have been the morning sacrifice. It could have been the evening sacrifice when people would go into the temple to pray. It was a scene that everyone hearing Jesus could easily identify with. Who were the men? Well, as far as first century Jewish culture is concerned, they could not have been more opposite. They could not have been more different. Because on the one hand, you had someone who was the most pious, the most religious man, the Pharisee. And on the other hand this despised, irreligious tax collector. And the Pharisees stood up to pray, Jesus says. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with standing up to pray. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us anywhere that we're ha we have to bow our head and close our eyes. 
In the, in the Scriptures, we see people praying all kinds of ways. Standing, sitting, kneeling, bowing down, face down, hands up, hands down, looking up, looking down. All kinds of ways people pray in Scripture. So why was he in the wrong? It's not that he stood, it's why he stood. Because the parable makes the context clear. He stood up and prayed in such a way as to be noticed by others. He prayed this to himself, Jesus says. And that could mean he was praying in his head, but not mumbling the words. We see that in Scripture. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, did that. But the context and the point of the parable indicate that's not really the reason he was doing this. Jesus' words indicate he was praying in the direction of himself. That his prayers were really directed at him. That he was having this monologue with himself, with God as an audience. Like a, 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 a religious award show acceptance speech in the guise of faithfulness. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. That was his prayer. Let, let's dissect his prayer. First, God. The mention of God. We are quick to mention God. The modern day politician, the modern day athlete is quick to mention God. But when we are honest with ourselves, oftentimes that's just lip service. Nationally, we say in God we trust. Our presidential inaugurations are dressed in religion. All religions, so that no one's offended. Anyone but the true God. Yet we sing, God bless America, without much thought as to what God blessing this nation would actually entail. Which for starters would be repentance. But when we sing it, we usually aren't praying God would cause our nation to prosper by humbling us. We invoke the name of God as if that very act sanctifies everything else we're about to say or do. As if it's a covering for everything we have done in the past or are about to do. This Pharisee was quick to be noticed by men and so he said, Theos, God, first. He probably would have said Elohim, Hebrew. And then what? I thank you that I am not like other people. Who, who, who could actually utter such a prayer? The, the contempt for the tax collector is not even thinly veiled here. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Probably none of us can comprehend ourselves saying those words. But the heart is deceitful. And Jesus' point in telling this parable, and in this parable, uh, the Pharisee saying these words was to show he thought himself worthy, he thought himself righteous before God. He was not like other people. He did the things which you do in society to look righteous. He fasted. He tithed. Fasting, by the way, was not required twice a week. It was required once a year in preparation for the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees fasted twice a week. And he went above and beyond all of the regular tithes and he let it be known. He wanted it to be known, his financial investment that he put into his religion, as if it gave him ownership, as if it gave him righteousness. That's what he was counting on. 
That he didn't do some things and that he did do others. And that is works righteousness. That is the definition of works righteousness. What Paul in Romans 10 calls a righteousness of our own. The religion which permeated first century Israel. And I tell you it permeates American religion today. It permeates Carthage, North Carolina today. Oh, he wasn't a swindler. He wasn't unjust. He wasn't an adulterer or immoral, or so he thought. My wife and I went on a rare date the other night. And we saw a movie based in the early 60s in segregated Virginia. It was the early days of the space program. This was uh, 1961. It was before man even reached space was when it began. And it's about these African-American women who worked for NASA. And what they did was they were the math behind everything. They were an invaluable part of the space program. Yet because of the color of their skin, they were treated unjustly and unfairly. Of course, the white characters in the movie were not bad guys. They didn't believe they were treating the black women unfairly. They didn't think they were swindling them out of job advancement opportunities. They didn't think they were being unjust toward them. They didn't think they were acting and speaking and and thinking immorally. There's a powerful scene in that movie in which a white woman who's a supervisor is in the bathroom with a, a black woman because this is in the process of the movie and some walls are being torn down. And this black woman is worthy of being a supervisor herself. She's, been, she's proven it time and again in her work. And the white woman says to her, Despite what you think, I have no problem with y'all. To which the black woman, smiling, said, I know. I know you probably believe that. I know you probably believe that. My point is that this Pharisee probably believed he was righteous. He believed he was better. He believed he was good. He believed he was worthy. He believed he was right with God because look at what he's done and look at the stuff he doesn't do like other people, like this tax collector. I know you probably believe that. You know, J.C. Ryle is right. Men's hearts are never in such a hopeless condition as when they are unaware of their own sins. Why? Because the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Look at the tax collector. He comes to the temple, which is odd in and of itself, Because tax collectors were notoriously irreligious. They didn't go near religious things. Why? Because the people hated them. Jews considered tax collectors traitors and for good reason. By the most part they were. Jews who were tax collectors were giving themselves into the employ of the Roman Empire to go around and collect taxes from their fellow man and they were given a certain amount to collect and you, whatever you get on top of that, you keep. So the tax collectors were enticed by that 
to get as much as they could from as many people as they could. And so they were hated because of it. This tax collector really was a swindler. He really was unjust. He really was immoral. And yet he too went to the temple to pray. But he stood some distance away. Indicating he did not want to be seen. He didn't want to be noticed by others. The temple is where the presence of God was. And he knew he needed to be there. But he also knew he was unworthy to be there. He was unworthy to be in the presence of God or even seen by those who were righteous. He knew how he was viewed in the eyes of the people. He knew how God also had to view him because he was beginning to realize that he was that man. He was the pariah they thought he was. So he stood, but he was unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven. Whereas the Pharisee prayed for all to hear and see, this man hid his face in shame. He had a sense... He had an overwhelming sense of his own sinfulness. An overwhelming sense of his own unworthiness. Of his guilt. Of his shame. He knew his sin had alienated him from the life of God. And rather than embolden him against God, it broke him before God. It broke him because we begin to see he began beating his breast, clenching his hands into fists, and pounding himself in a gesture expressing the bitterest of anguish, the deepest kind of sorrow. The only other time we see people doing this in the New Testament is after Jesus dies on the cross and the crowds go away beating their breast because what they've seen has evoked that kind of shame and sorrow. That was the heart of the tax collector. And what did he say when he spoke? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Same start as the other prayer. God, Theos, Elohim. But here we see that calling upon the name of the Lord is something much more than just uttering the word. What's behind the word? Beloved, this morning, what's behind your profession of faith in Jesus? It's easy to say, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus. What's the next sentence in your testimony? What's the next sentence after that? For the tax collector, being his breast, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Whereas the Pharisee, the one who knew the law and did everything right on the outside, whereas the Pharisee's prayer lacked any confession of sin, And any acknowledgement of unworthiness, any cry out for repentance, any cry out for mercy or regret, that's all this tax collector's prayer was. An unequivocal confession of his abject sinfulness and unworthiness to be in God's presence. He was admitting, God, I stand condemned before you. The irony of all this is that the tax collector and the Pharisee had a lot in common. They both understood the Old Testament to be God's revelation to man. They both believed God was the Creator. They both understood God was the lawgiver. God is the judge. God is holy. God is righteous. God is merciful. God is loving. They both believed in prayer. They both believed in the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the atonement. They both believed that God did forgive sins. 
But for all they believed in common, only the tax collector came to God in repentance. Only the tax collector came and sought forgiveness by faith. And you might ask, where's the faith here? The faith is in the tax collector's utter dependence on God as the only one who can grant mercy. The faith is seen in his desperation. Meanwhile, the Pharisee may have understood all the right things in his head, but he didn't repent. Oh, if you'd asked him, he would say, of course I'm not perfect. Of course I'm a sinner. But when it came to putting his profession of faith into practice, he was not seeking forgiveness by faith. He was not seeking mercy from the only God who can give it. He wanted recognition. He wanted things as He wanted them to be. He wanted people to see Him as righteous because of who He was, because of what He did, because of what He's done in the past, because of what He didn't do. And I dare say, beloved, that the religion of the Pharisee is still the religion of the masses. Last week we saw Jesus ask, When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? And that's because many, so many, maybe even many here today, the heart is deceitful. Their heart deceives them, many in this world. And today, maybe it's deceiving you. This is the question we all have to ask ourselves. Do you have the sorrow of the tax collector over your own sins? Do you come to Jesus like that? Have you cried out for mercy like that? Or are you coming before your God saying, Look at me. Thank God I'm not like other people. You might say, Of course I'm not perfect. Of course I'm not self-righteous. I know you probably believe that as the movie says. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. The tax collector was the one God declared righteous based on his faith, based on his true dependence on God. The tax collector went home justified. The Pharisee did not. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We see those words. We see that proverb all over the Gospels because it points us to the truth about salvation and the truth about ourselves. Only in coming to Jesus like a child, as the next verses in Luke reveal. Only in coming in abject humility. Only in coming in a real recognition of our own sinfulness and our unworthiness. Only in coming to God like this will the blessings of forgiveness afforded at the cross be given to you. And only the gift of everlasting life made possible by Jesus' resurrection, only by coming to Jesus like the tax collector, will we be justified and thus all whom He justifies, He glorifies. Romans 8. Only by repudiating the religion of human achievement. Only by submitting ourselves to the religion of divine accomplishment. 
two men went into the sanctuary for the worship service. One depending on the religious things they had done, upholding the traditions, viewing others with contempt. The other broken by his sin, a repenter, resting in the grace and mercy of Christ. Which one are you? Which one will you be? Which religion will be yours? Only one will be justified. And the question is, if it means putting yourself at odds, even with those whom you have the closest earthly connections, will you submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And follow Him wherever He leads, because that's what being a disciple is. That's what religion is. A divine accomplishment looks like that's what true salvation looks like. And may him who has ears to hear, hear. Father, burn the chafe in the hearts of every single person here, including myself, that we might be faithful and fruitful disciples of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I try to look myself in the mirror, even as I pray this, may anyone resting in a religion of what they do and what they've done young or old, be compelled to repent and confess their sins and entrust themselves to You. God, be merciful to us, the sinners. And come, Lord Jesus.